You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius podcast. If you have your Bibles, if you would look with me this morning to the book of Esther, about 12 books in from the Old Testament, you're going to come 10 or 12 books to the book of Esther. Today we are concluding this series. Before we get into our Christmas series that I'm really excited about starting next week, we're concluding this series in the book of Esther as we look once again to this amazing story of God's work in the midst of a crisis for the Jewish people. Now, this story we're looking at actually goes back 2,500 years into the history of the Jewish people. And God inspired uh, individuals to record this story so we would, we would have it today. But it's the story of how God used um, two people in particular, Mordecai and Esther, to bring about redemption, to bring rescue for the Jewish people. We'll get more, we'll get into that more in just a moment. But here's the tendency. Here's the tendency we have is we take these historical stories and we look at them and we say, well, that's what God did for Esther and that's how God worked through Esther, but He wouldn't do that for me. And I would tell you today, He'll do the same for you. Matter of fact, turn to your neighbor and say, He's still God today. Go ahead and tell him, He's still God today. God hasn't changed. Matter of fact, Hebrews 13.8 says this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, friends, let me tell you what that means. What he did, he's still doing. Who he was, he still is. Malachi 3.16, God says this, I am the Lord God and I change not. So my, my, my encouragement to you this morning is don't separate yourself from this story in the book of Esther. Put yourself in the story. And again, what God did for Esther, what God did in and through Esther, I believe, I believe that he wants to do in and through your life. We're going to get to that more in just a minute. But as we ended last week, Esther had just prepared the second banquet for King Xerxes and wicked Haman the second banquet, and the king asked her again after he has dined, after he's had plenty of wine, he asked her once again, Esther, what is it do you want? Like up to half of the kingdom. I mean, he was so taken by, by her beauty, by her countenance, by her character. He says, Esther, what is it you want? Like half of the kingdom. How many would agree with me at this point? She has the king in the palm of her hand, right? Whatever she wants. And so she unveils she reveals this wicked plot that Haman has set against her and her people. As we said last week, the king is like livid that such a deceptive plot's been construed. Interesting how he turns the situation. He has Haman, the prime minister, hung on the very gallows or murdered on the very gallows that Haman had built to murder Mordecai on. As we'll read in just a moment, this whole evil plot is actually turned for the good of the Jewish people where defeat and annihilation seemed inevitable. The Jewish people experienced great victory. So here's a quick summary. Look into your notes. Here's a quick summary of Esther's story. It all begins with the supernatural providence. If you go back to the first part of the, of the book, here's an orphan Jewish girl living in exile. So think about this. Talking about humble beginnings, an orphan Jewish girl living in exile. She's in a land that's not her own. She's a prisoner in a land, yet this orphan Jewish girl becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. Wow, talking about God doing impossible things. If, if you would have been betting on Esther, you wouldn't have bet on her to be the queen. 
I assure you. Yet that's what God does. So we have this supernatural providence playing out. Then there's this satanic plot to wipe out the Jewish race from which would come redemption of mankind. So what's playing out here is not just one wicked man who hates the Jews. Listen, there's something much greater happening behind the scenes. And here's what's happening behind the scenes. Satan, the adversary, is trying to wipe out the Jewish race. No Jewish race, no Jesus. No Jesus, no redemption, right? So there's a satanic plot playing out here. Again, it's more than just one uh, Persian man who's angry and upset at the Jews. But again, through this whole story, we see God working in amazing ways. Although God's name's not mentioned in the story, His providence, His presence is like all over the book. So what man had intended for evil, God turns for good. Through Mordecai's faithfulness and Esther's courage, the Jewish people were saved. So let's, let's read the end of the story. Esther chapter 8, if you have your Bible open, you can follow along on the screen as well. That same day, Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and he presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So Mordecai now becomes the prime minister. Interesting. Verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Here you go, women. Weeping gets you anything you want. Men, female staff members, if they come in my office and they start crying, they whatever you want, right? I'm done. Let's see Esther here. She's got this figured out. Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they've hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Well, as I said last week, the king did not make the first decree null and void. I mean, as we just read, that can't happen. So what did he do? He gave Mordecai, who's now the prime minister, the right to set forth another decree. And the second decree was basically this. Here's the summation of it. Um, All the Jewish people, you can defend yourself. Any people, any group of people, any nation comes against you, you have the right to defend yourself and to take whatever is theirs. And so what we have here is we have a crisis turning to celebration. We have an event of disaster and doom turned to the good of the, of the Jewish people. On this day, if you were to read further in the book of Esther, on this day in celebration, the Jewish people established a feast. It's called the Feast of Purim. And even this day, to this day, 
in the nation of Israel, they celebrate the Feast of Purim because it's a day of rescue. It's a day of salvation. It's a day that they remember God's intervention through Esther to save their people from the genocide that had been set in order by wicked Haman. But this is really a story of the underdog win. How many of you love a story when the underdog wins? Like when there's sports playing, I always root for the underdog unless it's Arkansas. And it happens to be right now they are the underdog. Um, so it makes it pretty easy. But I love, I love it when the underdog wins. It's like when God intervenes, he turns the table and what shouldn't happen does happen. And, and you stand back and say, wow, that could only be God. And that's what we have here. We, we have Haman. I mean, Haman's the prime minister. Talk about power. Talk about money. Talk about influence. Haman has it all. He's in this, he's in this position of control. And then you have Mordecai, or you have Mordecai who's, who's an unknown Jewish man. I mean, talk about no money, no influence, no position. And we, yet we see this whole thing turn. Haman had built this, this gallows that he's going to have Mordecai murdered on. And this whole scene turns. And the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, he gets hung on. And at the end of the story, guess who's the prime minister? The unknown Jewish man, Mordecai. Amazing. How God turns the table. The underdog wins. As we conclude this series this morning, this is what I want to do. I want to take the four key players, the four key characters, because there's four players in this story. There's Xerxes, Haman, Mordecai, and Esther. And and I want us to look at what's the life lesson we can learn from each of these players. What what is it that we can learn that will help us process life more effectively and to position us so that God can work in and through our lives? What we want to do this morning. So looking to your notes, first let's talk about King Xerxes. What can we learn from King Xerxes? I believe it's this. Never overestimate the value of your own importance. Don't allow what you've achieved or what you've gathered or the title you've come to or the influence that you've gained don't allow that to cause you to lose sight of your great need of God. And we have a human tendency. And I believe it's a human tendency that everyone in the room has to deal with. And here's the human tendency. Over a period of time, if we have success, if we have gains, if we come to a place of greater position, we have a tendency to begin to think that we are great. And in the midst of that, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of our great need of God. Listen, hear me, friend. Don't think, well, that's for my neighbor. No, it's for you. Every one of us have that tendency. The tendency over a period of time, again, as you have success, you forget. You forget your great need of God and you begin to think that you are great. So what do we learn from Xerxes? I believe it's this, no, never overestimate the value of your own importance. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the scripture says this, All men are like grass and their glory like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In other words, we're here for a short period of time. And then we die. And God's plans and purposes go on. 
His work, his work continues on. See, Xerxes, Xerxes didn't get this. He didn't understand this principle, this truth. He actually thought he was like the greatest king ever. Matter of fact, look with me back to chapter 1, at the beginning of the story. This is how the story begins. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. The king wanted to impress his buddies, wanted to impress the dignitaries. So what does he do? Verse 4 says, For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Uh, imagine this. You know, if you want to have a celebration, what, you throw a party for a day and like, that's been a good one, right? Or if it's like a big deal, maybe for three days or a week. Get this. For six months, he had a banquet. For six months, he had a party inviting all of his buddies. This was the purpose, so they could see how great he was. So they could see his splendor. So they could be in awe of this one who is the king of Persia. And if that's not enough, at the end of six months, he has seven days where like everyone gets to come. From the, from the greatest to the least. All the common folks could come in. And in the midst of this, they had all they wanted to eat. They had all they wanted to drink. There was probably some wild dancing going on and other stuff, whatever that might look like. And it was all about the king. Listen, one thing is for certain. King Xerxes didn't have an inferior, inferiority complex. He thought he was the greatest. By the way, interesting history. Archaeologists in their digs unearthing part of this city of Susa have come to find these inscriptions, inscriptions that the king made concerning himself. This is what they discovered, statements like the great king, the king of all kings, the king of this great earth. The king thought he was the greatest. In the midst of that, he he missed really who was great being, being God. Interesting, if you study out history, 13 years after this story we have recorded in Esther, 13 years later, King Xerxes is actually assassinated by his own bodyguards. The king's dead, and God's plans and purposes are still carrying forward, right? So, again, the thing we learn from the king is, don't, don't overestimate... Don't overestimate the value of your own importance. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Listen, pride in our lives, when we overestimate our our value, our importance, but it trips us up. It creates trouble in our lives. Recently, I was recently reading a story of a missionary who was who was trying to do some translation work for this particular tribe who, who needed language uh, and that, that they could relate to in their own tribe. And, and he was struggling to translate this word pride, or at least the concept of the word pride, and he couldn't come up with the right word. He, he finally came to, to the idea to use their word or words that they use for pride. And, and, and within the tribe, this is how they describe pride. pride. It's when a man's ears are too far apart. I think that's pretty good. When your ears are too far apart. Here's the danger. When we get caught up thinking we are great, we lose sight of the great one. When we get so consumed singing our own praises, we can lose sight of the value of singing praises to the one who's given us life. 
But I think that's a, the first lesson we learn from King, from King Xerxes is, and don't overestimate the value of your own importance. Listen, friends, I'm your pastor and I love you. I love you dearly, but I gotta, I gotta tell you the truth this morning. Here's the truth. You're not that great. You're not. You're wonderful. You're special. But listen, man, we have this great need of God. So don't allow your own importance to cause you to lose sight of your great need of God. Here's a, a lesson we learned from the second player being Haman. Never underestimate the diabolical nature of anger. Listen, when anger, when your anger is out of control and unaddressed, it always, it always brings harm and injury, certainly for others, but even in our own lives. And we see, we see this truth playing out for Haman. The root of the problem for Haman was Haman was an angry man. And because he was an angry man, we see these evil deeds playing out in his life. Turn to chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Gives us a picture of this. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him, he was enraged. He was angry. He was ticked off. Why? Because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. That made him angry. So there's, there's this rage stirring within him. Verse 6 says, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So here we have one man who's upset because another man won't bow to him. He gets angry, and out of anger... He wants to kill, bring about genocide for 15 million Jews. And the root of the problem, again, if you read the whole story, the root of the problem in Haman's life is he was an angry man. And his anger was uncontrolled. And what did he do? It inflicted injury on others. And this is, listen, this is just one illustration, one story of many throughout Scripture. The first murder recorded in the Bible... First murder is recorded in Genesis chapter 4, and it happened because of anger. We read the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel being the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain killed Abel because he was angry. If you read the story, here, here's the quick summary. Abel brought a sacrifice that honored God because of the shedding of the blood of a lamb. Cain brought a a sacrifice that did not honor God because there was not the shedding of blood. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He does not accept Cain's sacrifice. And as a result of that, Cain's angry. And in his anger, he murders his own brother. Uh, Listen to how the scripture records this. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Catch that. He's angry and God says sin is sitting at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Well, long story short, Cain didn't master his anger. He didn't control his anger. Anger out of control. He murdered his own brother. What was the problem? The problem was anger. 
the diabolical nature of anger. When your anger is uncontrolled, what does it do? It hurts and injures others. We see the same thing playing out with King Saul. When you read the story of King Saul, numerous times he tried to kill David. Why? Because he was angry. David was being praised for his military exploits. And Saul was jealous. And out of the jealousy, there was anger. He was an angry king. Tried to take David's life. Again, what do we see? Where there's anger that's uncontrolled, unchecked, it brings injury to others. The simmering anger that stays on the back burner has the ability to poison your life. If you allow it, hear me, this, listen, this is real life stuff. Every day, friendships are wrecked because of uncontrolled, unchecked anger. Right? Have you ever lost a friendship because of anger out of control? Every day in our neighborhood, in our community, in our state, in our nation, every day, marriages end because anger is uncontrolled, unchecked. What does it do? It harms, it hurts. Every day, marriage is destroyed. Every day in our neighborhood, in our community, in our state, every day children are abused because of parents' anger who's out of control. And right here, it's happening. Remember, 25 years ago, when my wife and I were in Texas, we began foster care. And um, we had a little boy come into our home. His name was J.D. J.D. was three, three and a half years old. And when J.D. came into our home, literally from the top of his back, his belt area, down below his knees, he was yellow, purple, and black, discolored from the bruising that his stepfather had inflicted on him. What? Anger? Out of control. Unchecked. What does it do? It hurts and it harms others. The scripture in James 1.20 says this, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So when or if there's an issue of anger in your life, listen, don't allow it to go unaddressed. Don't allow it to go unconfronted. I would say the same thing to you that God said to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. You have to master it. The diabolical nature of anger, how it hurts, how it injures. Listen, if there is an anger issue in your life, this is what I would say to you today. Get help. Don't just wound others and think it's okay. Don't just inflict harm on others and think it's okay. No, get help. Address the issue. Because again, unchecked, unchallenged, It will hurt others. It did for Haman in his story, in his life, and it will in yours. Well, here's the third player. The third player in the story is Mordecai. And this is what we learned from Mordecai. God honors faithfulness and righteousness. What does God honor? Listen, consistency, faithfulness, righteousness in your life. God will honor that in his time He'll act on behalf of those who seek Him. Listen, as you set your life to honor God, God will honor you. That's what we see from Mordecai. As you live your life doing that which is right, ultimately God will work for your good. I'm reminded of a verse of Scripture in Galatians 6-7 that says this, Do not be deceived. 
God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, it's that he'll reap. goes on in verse 8 to say, if you sow to please the, um, the selfish nature, then from that you reap destruction. If you sow to please the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then you reap eternal life. Listen, Mordecai sowed some good seed. But he was faithful. He honored God in his life. When the pressure was on, Mordecai stood faithful before God. When his life was threatened, what Mordecai was faithful to God. Didn't panic. Put his trust in God. When Haman, when Haman expected him to bow, when Haman demanded that he bow, he wouldn't bow to a man. Why? Because he was faithful to God. And what we see in this story is over a period of time, it didn't happen in a day, it didn't happen in the moment, but over a period of time, Mordecai was honored because of his righteousness and his faithfulness. And again, I I mentioned earlier how the tables turn. As we we end the story, this um, this unknown Jewish man who had no influence becomes prime minister and inherits this this crazy wild estate the estate of Haman why because he was faithful and he was righteous listen this is what I know when you set your when you set your life to honor God God will honor you although others may overlook your faithfulness God will not he'll work for your good as you set your life to please him to honor him he will eventually turn the bad for the good so when times are hard stay faithful to God when life's not working the way you thought it would, what do you want to do? You want to stay faithful to God. When people are against you, and they will be, what do you need to do? Stay faithful to God. Eventually, at some point, sometime, God's going to reward your faithfulness, your righteousness. God's going to turn the situation. Again, not so much always in your time, but in His time. What God did for Mordecai He'll do for you. So I think that's what we learned from Mordecai. What God honors. What's God looking for? Faithfulness and righteousness. Faithfulness in the small things. Faithfulness in the big things. And as we are faithful, what God honors that, He rewards that. Here's the last player, obviously, is Esther. Esther, who went from being an orphan girl to the Persian queen. This is what we can learn from her. When we're willing to take a stand for God, He'll reveal His greatness through our lives. When we're willing to take a stand, when we're willing to speak up, listen, there's no limit. There's no limit to what God can do as we simply make ourselves available and take a stand. I mean, God God took a woman, a, a young Jewish woman, placed her as queen, and it was time she was willing to speak up, and it stopped the genocide of her people. Genesis chapter 4, what I believe is like the, the key verse in this story, Genesis chapter 4 beginning with verse 12, reads like this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. So she's now queen. Do you think that because you are in the king's house, you alone, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows... But that you have come to the royal palace, the royal palace and position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai 
Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, through Esther's courage, she was willing to put her life on the line. As she stood up, as she spoke up, God opened great doors of opportunity for her. He made a way where like, there seemed to be no way. Again, amazing how God turned the tables. And it happened when? It happened when Esther was willing to take a stand. It was there that God worked in and through our life. You know, this is what I believed. I believe that God's still looking for Esthers today. I believe that he's still looking for teenagers, for college students, for men and women like yourself who are willing to take a stand who are willing simply to make themselves available. Listen, I believe there's no limit to what God can do when we simply say, God, here I am. I'm willing to take a stand. At that point, we position us for God to bring His work in and through our lives. So here's my question to you this morning. Are you willing to be an Esther, to take a stand? Like in your school. I mean, what might God do to the high school students? What might God do through your life in your school, at Huff High School, or at Bailey Middle School, or at Mallard Creek, or at North Mac, or at South Iredale, or Morrisville? What, what, God, what might God do if you took a stand? See, I, I believe that God's waiting for a teenager, a student, to take a stand to impact the student body. He's looking for an Esther today. Or what might God want to do in your workplace? Whatever that might look like. As you take a stand. In what dynamic ways might God want to work to bring rescue, to bring redemption? See, because God is consistently continuing about his redeeming work today. What might God want to do through your life in your workplace? See, I believe God's looking for Esthers in the racing community, Esthers in the banking community, Esthers in the construction community. Or what might God want to do in your neighborhood if you took a stand against injustice or some evil playing out? How might God work through your life? See, I believe that God's looking for individuals like Esther who are willing to take a stand because he wants to bring his kingdom present in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace. You know, I love the scripture in Second Chronicles 16.9 that says this, For the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. What does that mean? I believe it means this, that God's looking for people today. Again, don't separate yourself from the story. God's looking for Esther's today who are willing to take a stand so He can say, I want to bring my greatness present in this situation through this individual again what god's looking so are you willing are you willing to be an esther in this day in this time where god's positioned you see god's always at work even if, even if we can't see it, even if it's not easily identifiable, He's working His plan of redemption. He can turn our tragedies into triumph and even work through our enemies for our good. There's no limit to what God can do. That's what we see in this story. So don't 
Don't lose hope today, whatever you're facing. If it would be my challenge to you this morning, stay faithful to God. If it didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out, or if it's not happening in the time frame that you thought it was going to happen in, this is my challenge to you today. Stay faithful to God. Why? Because God's always at work. He's working to bring rescue. He's working to bring redemption. So what's their job? Their job is to stay focused and to stay faithful. That's what Mordecai did. Focused and faithful. And eventually, God worked in his life, through his life, through Esther's life, for the good of God's people. Listen, he'll do the same today. Romans 8.28, I shared this verse last week, but I want to leave you with it again. In all things, God's working for the good. Of those who love him, we are called according to his purpose. Listen, according to the truth of God's word and the very character of God, not only is God good, but God's working for good. Amen? Not only is God good, he can't be bad. Not only is God good, but he's always working for good. What's your job? What's my job? Stay focused and stay faithful. And in God's time, in God's way, He's going to open doors that you could never open. He's going to make a way where there could be no way. He'll turn the tables, as He did for Mordecai and Esther. And you'll be amazed at what God did through your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank You this morning for the truth of Your Word, the encouragement of Your Word. God, I thank You that You're working today. Not just yesterday, not just in Esther's story. But God, you're at work today in the Lake Norman community. You're at work today, Huff High School. You're at work today in the Bank of America. But sometimes in this ungodly world we lived in, we, we look and we say, well, it doesn't seem like God's at work. But Lord, this is what I know. You're always at work to bring rescue and redemption. And Lord, my prayer today is that for everyone in the room, from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, that we would be willing to be Esther's. That we would be willing to take a stand. Because, Lord, I, I really believe, God, you want to bring your greatness present today. Through our lives, where you've placed us. And Lord, may we be willing simply to make ourselves available. Lord, in this time to be Esther's, that you can work through us to bring redemption. You can work through us to bring rescue. And Lord, I would pray for those today who would think that they're in a hopeless situation. Like they see no way out. Lord, I pray that this story of of Mordecai and Esther would be that of hope for them. Lord, how you took an enemy and actually turned the very plans of the enemy for the good of your people. A hopeless situation to great hope. Lord, I pray that they would find encouragement and and, and faith today. And Lord, may you work in their hopeless situation to turn it for hope as they put their focus on you. God, we thank you that you are good and that you're always working for our good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.